Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Humanity Center's Juneteenth Celebration and Recognition. Woo! Are you ready for a good time? Have you had a good meal? Well, all right then, let's do it. up a little bit more in my monitor, please. Listen, I love the East, I love the West, North and South, they're all the best, but without you, it would be a mess. I love being here with you. I love the shore, I love the rocks, and ooh, what's more? But baby, without you, it would be a bore. I love being here with you. Singing in the shower, laughing by the hour. Love is such a breezy game. I love any kind of weather, long as we're together. I love to hear you say my name. I love good wine and fine cuisine. Candlelight, I love that scene And y'all know exactly what I mean I love being here with you Today I have on piano Three-time Grammy Award winning Mr. Billy Steele And from the sounds of blackness Three-time Grammy Award winner Mr. Daryl Boudreaux together if you want to. Oh yeah. Here we go. Singing in the shower, laughing by the hour. Love is such a breezy game. I love any kind of weather, long as we're together. I love to hear you say my name. I love good wine and fine cuisine. Candlelight, you know what I mean. And darling, with you I'd be a scream. I love of the afternoon. Can, you, can we hear it one more time for Ms. Javetta Steele? We love being here with you as well, Javetta. Thank you so much. My name is Kevin Lindsay, and I have the pleasure of serving as the CEO of the Minnesota Humanity Center. Thank you all for being here today. Give yourself a round of applause. At the Minnesota Humanity Center, we like to begin all of our programs with a land acknowledgement. The name Minnesota comes from the Dakota name for this region, which translates to the following, the land where the waters reflect the clouds. The Dakota, the 11 federally recognized tribes here in Minnesota that share geography with the state of Minnesota, 
and the numerous other tribes that call this place home, and the many indigenous people who have also traveled and who live here today. They view Minnesota as a cultural, spiritual, and economic place that is intrinsically woven into the place that they view as sacred. And we honor them by giving them this land acknowledgement. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm tribal sovereignty, and we also hold ourselves accountable to recognize and counter the historical and contemporary injustices that continue to impact indigenous people through mutually beneficial partnerships, research policies and practices that uplift and amplify indigenous voice. So thank you all again for being here. You're in for a special treat. Many of you uh, who have had a chance to come to the Minnesota Humanities, you'll sometimes hear me talk about the vision of the Minnesota Humanities. And we talk about this vision of being curious, connected, and compassionate. Curious to come to conversations with open hearts and open minds to hear one another. Connected, as Dr. King reminds us, that we're tied to a garment of mutual destiny. What impacts one indirectly impacts others. And compassionate, we're motivated to go beyond empathy toward action. So we're very blessed today to be in the presence of Dr. Bernice King, who's going to talk to us today about how we can cultivate a mindset for the beloved community. And I will say this is probably one of those days where you're very thankful to be in a position such as mine for myself. I feel very lucky and fortunate to have spent some time with her. So I can tell you, you are also in intrigue for Dr. King. So without any further ado, help me welcome to the stage the CEO of the King Center, Dr. Bernice King. So my brothers and my sisters, as we embrace this urgency of creating the beloved community, now is the time to be loved. Love means understanding, redemptive goodwill toward all which seeks nothing in return. So be loved by implementing the demands of justice to eliminate the school to prison pipeline that has so many black children entrapped. Be loved by correcting voting policies that seek to suppress the votes of millions of black and brown people. Be loved and implement the demands of justice by transforming a society that is disproportionately violent toward black lives, including black transgendered lives and indigenous lives. Be loved and correct false narratives and economic policies that continue to divide and pit poor and working class black and white people against each other. Be loved and implement demands of justice where systems and structures are deconstructed and lead the way of living in community that reimagines just humane, equitable, and sustainable policies, practices, and behaviors. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them who hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and abuse you. Be loved and do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God.
And Dr. King, again, appreciate you being here today. Wanted to give you a few minutes at the very beginning to kind of help frame sort of a little bit of the conversation here today. And then I understand, uh, I've got a few questions for you, but I understand that you'll take some questions from the audience. When we do that, we'll bring down a microphone and then Janelle from OMG will circulate within the crowd to be able to uh, take those questions. Thank you, good afternoon, everybody. I am um, grateful to be here in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, uh, as you call it, uh, to be a part of this wonderful dialogue and discussion. And I want to thank you. I said last night to a, a group of individuals, and thank you for what you are seeking to do here um, in this part of our nation uh, to truly uh, build the beloved community. Um, uh, the devastation that occurred here on the soils of your uh, city, um, as all of us know, um, really um, caused a great uh, transition in our, in our world. Um, before that time period, there were many people, obviously, who were on the, the front lines of trying to fight for what I call, what we at the King Center call a just, humane, equitable, and peaceful world. But there were many people that were on the sidelines and enjoying the comfort and convenience uh, of their lives. Um, and that one devastation that should never have occurred, and it's been occurring over and over again for whatever reason, um, there was a convergence of so many things with the pandemic and uh, that happening. It allowed us to begin to make some necessary shifts um, in, in our world. And as with any change, uh, there's always going to be resistance and backlash. And, and I wanna just uh, iterate that very strongly because sometimes we, we uh, get shocked um, when these things happen. But you know, as I've gotten uh, more mature and wise uh, in my life, I've come to understand there's some things that come with life um, and when you begin to understand that, it makes things a little bit more manageable um, because there's some things as humanity that we will never be able to change. We can lessen the effect of, uh, but there are things that are in our world because there are things that each one of us have to work out. Um, things that have to work out of us and things that have to work in us so that we come to this ultimate place uh, where we are reflecting what I believe is the heart and the nature and the character of God himself in the earth. Um, and so I'm glad to be here to, to have this discussion. I'm on a mission. I tell people often um, that I don't necessarily have this, you know, uh, legacy that I'm trying to create for myself. And, I, and people ask me that all the time. What is your legacy, Bernice? I know you have your parents and all that kind of stuff. And uh, probably a couple of years ago, it really hit me hard. You know, most people who ask that question don't necessarily come from what I come from. And what I mean by that is I was born into legacy. And so instead of trying to figure out what my legacy is, my role is to figure out how to continue a legacy that I was born into. And so, 
You know, I have three generations of social activists in my family uh, before me. My great-grandfather, A.D. Williams, uh, who was the second pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, um, was an activist. He was the founder of the Atlanta chapter of NAACP. Um, in today's society, that may seem like nothing um, because NAACP has been around forever doing work and, you know, in a different place. But back then, it was very dangerous uh, to uh, found a chapter of the NAACP and talking about challenging injustices. Um, he also um, worked with a contingency of other uh, leaders, in particular ministers, uh, to help found the first uh, Atlanta public high school for blacks in Atlanta that his grandson, Martin Luther King Jr., would later attend. Um, and then my grandfather, Daddy King, Martin Luther King Sr., was an activist. Uh, became the third pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. My great-grandfather, A.D. Williams, served 40, uh, excuse me, 37 years my grandfather, Daddy King, served as pastor of Ebenezer for 44 years. Um, he uh, fought for the equalization of teacher salaries, uh, black and white teachers uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. He, he fought for the integration of um, downtown uh, courthouse elevators. You know, today we just walk in and out of elevators with people of all different cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, gender, and everything else. Uh, and we take those things for granted. But back in that day, that was um, not uh, permitted. And so my grandfather fought for that. He was a founding uh, board member of uh, the uh, still, um, still uh, historical Black Bank, Citizens Trust Bank in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and so this, and, and you know my, my dad, um, and of course, we'll talk later about the one that really uh, helped to propel Dr. King to who he is in our societal society today, um, my mother, Coretta Scott King. So I come from that kind of uh, work, and one of the most important things that my father gave to us from his studying um, of a lot of philosophers and theologians, in particular from his study of Mahatma Gandhi um, and his deep faith uh, and followership of Jesus Christ was nonviolence. And um, there was something that he said uh, to the world in 1964 when he delivered his Nobel Peace Prize lecture in Oslo, Norway. This is not the acceptance speech. This is the lecture that they deliver at the university there. And he said, I suggest that the philosophy and strategy, strategy of nonviolence immediately become a subject of study, subject of study, and serious experimentation in every field of human conflict by no means excluding relations between nations. Um, and so in my time period, I see my responsibility as encouraging and helping to develop more individuals across this world who are committed to embrace and practice nonviolence as a way of life. You know, my mother set some things in motion 
but now it's time to raise up the army. So that's it. Very powerful words. I, I have to pick up just sort of where you left that. So this idea of forming this army committed to nonviolence in all spheres. How can we be a part of that? How can we support your respective effort at the King Center? How can all of us take individual steps in the places that we are at? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do a, 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 personal, a, a personal corporate nonprofit plug. So last year in January, um, we launched the first ever we meaning the King Center. And the King Center, just so you know, is the official, keyword official, living memorial to the life, work, and legacy of my father. It was founded in June of 1968, two and a half months after my father was assassinated by my mother. Um, and uh, she wanted to ensure that the generations that were still living at that time and future generations would fully understand what went into the change that they were making in the South, the social change. That there was more to it than demonstrations and protests and boycotts, but there was a nonviolent uh, planning and, and strategy um, and training that happened, that people didn't just show up with a sign. They had to be prepared. Um, and so she created the institution to ensure that there would be a place, an epicenter, um, where people could really learn about how nonviolence was applied in that movement, but also how it can be applied uh, holistically in all of our engagements as a part of humanity, whether you're talking about your personal relationships at home with your family, uh, whether you're talking about your relationships in the workplace, um, whether you're talking about working together and making decisions, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be um, in some form of political office. And so uh, they encapsulated what they called Kingian nonviolence. Of course, my father didn't call it that, but the King Center developed uh, it into um, a means for people to now be educated and trained because they did the education and the training but as you understand they did it in the moment while things were literally happening so as daddy said they didn't get a chance to to look at it as a subject of study and so under uh, my leadership just last year we launched the first ever e-learning platform for nonviolence and we call it today, under the banner of Kenyan nonviolence, Nonviolence 365, because we want people to understand this is not something you treat like a, a piece of your wardrobe that you put on and take off at whim and wham. It's something that you uh, engage in on a day, sometimes a moment <laughs> by moment uh, uh, process. And so that e-learning, um, platform at thekingcenter.org or thekinginstitute.org is available to people all over the world. Um, this year we translated into six languages, um, French, 
Spanish, Italian, um, Korean, German, and um, Mandarin. We're gonna translate it into six, I believe six other languages in the near future. Um, we are going, we, we also this year um, condensed the 16 to 18 hour version, which we launched last year, um, which now is our master uh, course. We've condensed that to three and a half hours for the workplace. And a team of ours was just in Chicago meeting with one of the major uh, corporate banks in our country uh, for them to begin to engage that platform. So we are trying to make sure that people have a foundation into understanding truly what nonviolence is because there's a misunderstanding. Again, in today's society, nonviolence equals protest. And that's not true. Protest is a part of a strategy and it's not the only in terms of seeking to confront injustice. So this whole platform helps us to understand nonviolence holistically. The definition that we have come up with just studying my father and looking at the work that they did is that nonviolence is a love-centered way of thinking, speaking, acting, and engaging that leads to personal, cultural, and societal transformation. We talk about that definition in this, in this um, online experience. Talk about what violence is. When I ask most people, uh, or when I say to most people, it'd be good for you to take nonviolence, the first thing most people feel like, well, I'm not violent. <laughs> because they understand violence in the context of physical. You know, hurting someone physically. But with our, we're being very violent today with our tongues with our posts on social media, you know, um, with our dialogue and debates, you know, when we, when we have our different podcasts. Our language has to even be nonviolent. And, and nonviolence is not weak and wimpy. If anybody thinks Martin Luther King Jr. was weak and wimpy, they're totally, um, you know, misinformed. Uh, he was a very strong voice and he spoke truth in a way that was a sword that, that healed and not cut you to kill you. When he spoke, he cut you to heal you. And so today I think we speak in ways that we're trying to destroy people as opposed to penetrate them so that something is unearthed in them that taps, uh, comes from the core of who they really are as God created them and awakens them to that part so that that part can begin to lead and not the other part that is leading out of their hurt, their pain, their confusion, their, their misteachings or whatever the case might be. Um, and so we talk about all of these different forms of, of violence. Um, and, and I wanted to say the speech one, especially language, because we overlook that a lot. You know, obviously policies that have violent implications and violent impact. Um, so we go through all of that. We talk about the difference between violence and conflict, you know, because all conflict is not violent. 
in the beloved community, when we talk about it, most people think it's a utopian dream and you're encouraging us to just go along to get along. Nothing could be further from the truth because in the beloved community, there is going to be conflict. It's just that you resolve conflict from a different place out of a, a heart and spirit of love and a means to bring about you know, change and transformation of system structures and also ultimately transformation of people's hearts, which is a long-term process. That's why you have to work on the systems and structures and the policies and laws in the meantime so that people are not hurt and harmed. But you can't give up working on people's hearts at the same time. Because over time, as you plant a seed, somebody comes along and waters that same seed. At some point, there is growth and, and transformation. Um, so we talk about conflict versus nonviolence. And we talk about how you know, conflict can become, I mean, conflict versus violence, how, how conflict can become violent. <laughs> and then we delve into the principles and steps of nonviolence. Most people can go online right now, read the principles and steps but you're not gonna understand them just reading them. You gotta really study it. You got, we, we, we help to unpack that for you. Um, present different scenarios for you to understand. And then we look at the context in which those principles and steps were used in various campaigns uh, with my father. Um, and once we go through all of that, history and the process, then we delve into scenarios, real life things that are happening today that people can begin now, everything that you learned before now, let's put you in a situation and see how you're going to process through it using these principles and steps. So I said all that to say, mm -hmm. <laughs> I hope you'll join us on the journey because Dr. King said that the aftermath of nonviolence is redemption, the aftermath is reconciliation, the aftermath is the creation of the beloved community. It is not possible, in our opinion, to create a beloved community absent studying and understanding and embracing and practicing and ultimately living nonviolence. And you can't get that by osmosis. You have to go through some kind of education and training. You just can't even pick up a book. You have to be engaged in that kind of interaction so that some of your thinking also can be challenged along the way. So people can sign up online if they're interested in the Workplace Edition. Um, uh, they, they can, um, that's, a, that's an email that I'd have to give and, and I don't even know what it is. <laughs> we, we can follow But you can up reach out can, yeah, yeah, we'll uh, to the King Center for the Workplace Edition. Um, but individuals can go on right now um, and, and it's a self-paced you know, paced, uh, course. Um, and we also do virtual um, experience as well. And, and we're beginning to start back doing in-person experiences uh, as well. Because we, as I said, I'm on a mission to shift the way we do things in this world. Um, and I can talk a lot about that just by what's happening in our city right now with our police train, public safety training. Um, center and how that was not done appropriately from the very beginning so no so much that you said within there i mean the absence of tension does not mean justice right reigns. that's and what daddy said true peace is not merely the absence of tension but the presence of justice a lot of times people are just trying to quiet it down 
a lot of people in the business community, how can we just settle this so we can keep doing business? But we can't just settle things. We gotta begin to look at the core of why these things are taking place. That's why daddy often said, not justifying because he never supported violence. He did not condone it. But he said, we have to understand where this stuff is coming from and that violence is the language of the unheard. Uh, the power of language. Um, you, in the time that I've been with you, you've come back to that and how important it is for us mm -hmm. to be very careful with the language which we use. Any ideas, because I'm sure uh, many of us here listening to what you were saying, trying to love the person within that organization that may be difficult for us and to kind of come back and, and create space for them. How do we in, some, in this time that we're in find that space to love that person, to create space for them, to continue to work with them with through language? Well, you know, it, that's the part where it starts with me. You know, you often want, first of all, let's be honest. The human instinct is to tell somebody off. I, think that and, I didn't hear an amen. No to, amen? Oh. And to chew their head off with your tongue. That's real. Well, I'm not denying that. I'm not divorced from that. But, what, what's that? You said you're guilty? Yeah. We've all been guilty. I mean, come on, let's be, let's be honest. It's not easy. But just because it's not easy and just because it seems instinctual and just because it feels good, let's be honest, it feels good. When people attack you and you can attack them back worse and, and leave them to pieces, just shred them to pieces with what you say, it, it, it feels really good. But the reality is, what have we accomplished? And if you're a person who cares about an outcome that's towards something that's right or just or fair, just telling somebody, I told them off, it won't happen again. <laughs> but you left something there in the atmosphere of their mind, in the atmosphere of that environment, and violence is going to perpetuate violence. You know, and so we have to set another example. So sometimes you have to first, in a real quick way, take a deep breath. And this is, this is very practical. You, I, I find myself doing it because one of the, the most uh, violent parts of, my, of, of Bernice is my tongue. Amen? <laughs> I have a witness here. Amen? My security, he's security in saying it, okay? <laughs> I, I noticed he looked down. I noticed he looked down at so, 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 and I'm growing because I understand why that feels good in the moment, because afterwards, because I'm a very self-conscious person, and I really am very compassionate, and, and I care about people and their well-being. I dial back what I'm feeling in that moment. Take a break, breath, 
and I think about how do I want this to end up? What is my ultimate goal? I know they just insulted me or whatever, and I go right back at them, but I, I stop and I say, okay, I come from those places. I do what they just did, you know, and what do I do it from? I'm doing it from my anger, you know, the stress that may be on me, a lot of things that may have attacked me previously, and so I'm doing it to people. So I start thinking that all these possibilities are going on, and this is coming from somewhere in a person. Whether it's their ignorance, their ideology, their fear, their, whatever it is, I quickly try to analyze to the point of maybe not knowing exactly what it is, but knowing it's coming from somewhere. And so I don't take it personal. That's what's hard, not taking this stuff personal. And therefore, it gives me an opportunity at that point sometimes to say, you know, what's going on, you know? Tell me more, why, why, why are you speaking like this? Is, what, is that necessary? You know, there are things like this I do to try to diffuse the situation. Um, and again, it takes a lot of discipline to do that. Uh, but you have to want a different outcome. If you just want to continue to be in battle with people, you can do it. And then the final thing is, it ain't healthy. If nothing else, do yourself a favor and stay in a healthy place. That is a spirit coming from a person that's trying to pull you into an unhealthy place because all of that negative energy and emotion that's coming from them, and if you conjure up all of that in you, it's gonna affect you ultimately through time. Every situation that we go through health-wise, it ain't just because you're getting older. It's not just because of your diet. It's also because of your emotional state, you know? And so do yourself a, self a favor and stay in a place of peace and love and then figure out how to speak to that person. If it's something they said that's inaccurate, how to correct that, you know? Um, and be truthful about that without trying to denigrate them. I know y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. Now they're about ready to say amen. Try it. Amen. And the goal is not to change the person. The goal is to make sure you stay the right person. That's the part about nonviolence. Everybody thinks nonviolence is about the other person. It's about you staying in the right place. You know, that's my grandfather used to tell us. And my, my father did say it in different ways, and I think it came from someone else. Never stoop so low as to hate another person. Never let somebody pull you to that level. You're better than that. You help to change the situation and bring them up and out of that craziness. Uh, so our good friends at... So our good friends here in town, Blue Cross, uh, Blue Shield, have declared racism a public health crisis. They want to have a conversation about that. And speaking to this, uh, there's no mistaking why high blood pressure is so high in, in some communities, such as the African-American community. 
I was struck uh, in the short time that we have been together, uh, how hearty your laugh is, how much you enjoy being around others. And I'm wondering again about that beloved community, how much we should be sharing with others that are going through it and not letting things that divide us as it relates to um, colorism, being the talented tenth, going to this college or that college, how do we create more love within our respective community? You know, that's, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's gonna take some self-work first. Um, we got a lot of trauma in the black community. But let me not just say we only. We probably have, next to the indigenous community, the, 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 the perpetual amount of trauma. Let me just put it that way. We're all trauma, not traumatized in the world, period. I don't care who you are. Um, but in particular, as it relates to the black community, um, we've got to do a lot of self-work and self-healing because we are projecting onto each other because there's systems and structures that have been put in place that have oppressed us so long, exploited us, excluded us, diminished us for so long, the logical target becomes what's close to you, you know? And we have to work through that in order to get along. And we have to be at a place, those of us who may be at a different place, we have to be at a place where we can help pull others along through the process. Um, we have to have family meetings. Sometimes we just need to come together with us. I get we need to work in coalitions and all that, but honestly, it's time to have a family meeting in the black community, period. We need to shut the doors, create some spaces and places, and work some things out because we're stepping over each other, stepping on each other, you know, trying to outdo each other. Um, and, and then there are those of us that feel like, you know, I'm better than, and it's just, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a real mess. Um, and I'm hoping those that see it and understand it can pull that together so we can get behind those closed doors and just work through all of this. Um, because we, you know, we're doing things that are very um, destructive. And they're things that we can learn from each other as well, regardless of you know, how educated we are, how experienced we are, we can learn from each other even generationally. And we need to have those kind of honest conversations um, and look at what these things are that you're talking about and talk them through and talk them out um, and, and create an apparatus you know, for us to get whatever it is we need to heal. Because there's a lot of healing that's needed right now. You know, it's kind of hard to correct certain things in the world from a very wounded, damaged place because you're doing it out of that. I think that's one of the reasons why I love the name of the book. It starts with me, that internal mm -hmm. focus and looking mm -hmm. at what I personally can do. Um, I know everybody is going here is going to receive uh, the book. It starts with me. Uh, we'll make sure that you all get that. I, I'm 
with that kind of a transition. Could you talk a little bit about the going, the making of It Starts With Me and... Talk about what? Uh, the making of the book, oh, okay. It Starts With Me. So, um, last year, everything was last year, huh? <laughs> we finally got out of the pandemic. I'm not going to say that. 2021. <laughs> two years ago. Um, we um, launched a campaign at the King Center uh, called Be Love. And the purpose of the campaign was to kind of interrupt all of the polarization and divisiveness in our society. To just kind of grab some people's attention. Now, have we made as much progress as we would have liked? Heck no. <laughs> but we have been planting some important seeds. The reason we did it is because in studying my father, he talked about the relationship between power, love, and justice. And we were looking at the landscape as it relates to social justice and how people are trying to uh, address issues of social injustice, oftentimes in an unjust way. Um, so my father talked about how power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. So this whole notion of love from the perspective of Martin Luther King Jr. with power and strength and justice is what we wanted to interject um, in the uh, marketplace. So we started this campaign um, and we have a pledge even now still on our website. We did a lot of um, advertisement and marketing. We had a uh, Be Love billboard in, in Times Square at one point um, just to kind of put it in people's psyche and mind. And as we were going through it, we said, oh my God, how do we reach the next generation? How do we reach children? Because my earnest belief is that if we can reach the young people and inject the things that need to be injected, we can transform our society. In fact, if we can just hold it together for about 15 more years, I think we're going to see some things majorly shift because for the most part, yes, there's a generation being raised by people who have those white supremacist ideologies, practices, and behaviors. But I also see a large contingency of young people who truly understand you're my sister and you're my brother. And not just in the feeling sense, but things need to be fair for you as well. Uh, and so we wanted to bring kids along and the idea came up to do a children's book. And, and uh, at that particular time, uh, we had as our theme for the King Holiday, it starts with me. I think there was one that was shifting priorities to create the beloved community. Um, but we took those first words, it starts with me and said, let's put that on the book and have a little girl on the front um, with a shirt on that says, be love. So the book is about little Amora. Of course, Amora in French means love. And we searched out something that could be the name of the girl because she didn't have a name when we first started the book. <laughs> uh, so we named her Amora. 
And Amora is taking uh, her friends on a journey to learn how to be loved, to open, open their hearts, their minds, you know, to learn how to speak, you know, with love and to act with love. Um, and that's how it all, you know, started. Um, and I, you know, there's a young lady who's a children's book author that we brought on board to um, help to write the book. She and I worked jointly together with uh, the illustrator. Um, and then we published the book last year. But we started two years ago. <laughs> uh, so that's how we got to the book. Um, and it talks about the beloved, how love creates the beloved community. Um, and uh, we're in the process of releasing a curriculum uh, connected to it. Uh, it should be available, I think, by, by the fall of the first of next year. And I appreciate you mentioning that. So one of the things the Minnesota Humanities Center would love to work with the King Center on is to get more of the books within schools. There's many school leaders here uh, in the audience uh, that love hearing that. So we'll follow up on that. The question of cultivating the beloved community. Um, what are some of the things, again, I appreciate the conversation we've been having, not just on this stage, but the time you've been here. What are some of the things that we all could be doing to cultivate the beloved community mindset? So I'm gonna use three words. Um, but one of them I've been talking about heavily, language. Language. Uh, leadership that we alluded to. And when I speak of leadership, and I'm gonna come back to each one of them, when I speak of leadership, I'm saying not waiting on somebody else. Starts with me taking personal responsibility. The other one is leaning in or learning. Uh, my father said in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos of Community, that was published in 19. 67 in his World House chapter where he talked about the world house that we live in with all of our different cultures, cultures and language and how we live in this world where we have all this diversity and how technology and science has connected us um, and how we must create a world where we learn how to live together as brothers and sisters, or together we will be forced to perish as fools. And so when you think about that, that learning, which I call leaning in, you know, with the, in, with the uh, intentionality of seeking to understand past your own set of beliefs and past your own values. It doesn't mean that you're going to lose your values. It means that you're gonna gain a greater understanding of where other people come from and how they arrived at whatever mindset they have. And some have some wacky mindsets. Let's just be real but you might have a little bit in you too. <laughs> Let's be real about that as well. So I often tell this leaning in story from the a story that I heard, what was very powerful for me. There's a young lady who's a black um, 
artist, hip hop artist down in Mississippi. She launched a campaign um, um, towards removing the, uh, the state flag from her, from her state. And um, when she launched that campaign on social media, she started receiving a lot of threats, as you can imagine, in Mississippi. And there was a gentleman, a white gentleman, who happened to know her, had known her for 25 years. And he reached out, basically said, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I'm concerned about your well-being. She, in turn, invited him to come meet with her at her home in the backyard. And they had a conversation. So he leaned in, she leaned in. And the first thing she asked him was not why you support that flag and do you understand how it affects people that look like me? She said, tell me what that flag means to you. When people feel, believe, think different than we are, we dismiss them immediately. They're just off. That's not right. But it doesn't get you anywhere. Because <laughs> just because you feel that way towards that person, there are going to be more of those people. They keep coming. Period. All the way around. If you're on the right side, left side keep coming. Left side, the right side keep coming. So we got to figure this out. We got to learn. We got to try to understand where people are coming from, even if we don't agree with them. Why is that? Because as she asked that question, she penetrated him. And he wanted to know, well, what does it mean to you? Hmm. That's that curiosity you're talking about. No judgment, just trying to understand. And that's hard, because if you got strong feelings about something, and people are totally different in their thinking, it's hard to not shut down and not want to hear anymore. So I get it. Um, but again, it's just one of these things I'm trying to get people to understand. Our differences ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, let's just accept that. We are going to be different. We're not going to all think alike. We're not going to all like each other. <laughs> but we got to learn how to love each other. And we got to learn how to coexist with all of these differences and try to find a way. And it's hard work. It's not expedient. You got to talk it through. You might have to come back two and three and four and 10 and 20 more and 100 times. You keep working at it. They sat there, had a conversation back and forth, and something started happening to him. He started caring more about her than the flag. But guess what? He went home, still had a flag in his front yard. He didn't do anything. But within a year, he took it down, connected with her, and joined her in the campaign. Now, 
Just long story short, because it's a true story, and I'm not saying they're the only, but long story short, Mississippi now has a new flag as of last year. It's possible for us to create a different world and a different climate, but you have to have the curiosity and the courage and the conscientiousness to do that and lean into people that are different than you and stop just trying to circle yourself with the choir. And sometimes you have to get to a place where I respectfully disagree, but I still love you. And there's more to you than that. My cousin and I are very different politically. She voted for President Trump. Black, Martin Luther King Jr.'s brother's oldest daughter. Can you imagine in most households, people broke up because their loved one voted for President Trump? And I'm giving him honor because he was president. Whether we like it or not, some people are like, that man, that orange man, no. I'm going to give him the dignity of being a person. It is not my responsibility to strip him of his personhood. My responsibility is to send out love and to speak truth in love, too. So he is a person no matter what he's done and harmed and anything else. I don't excuse that, but I'm not going to allow myself to strip a person of their personhood. They, they do that very well. I don't have to do it. But I wasn't going to not connect with my cousin because she voted for Trump. She's my cousin. I love her. There's more to her than just voting for Trump and whatever other stuff, you know, she supports. We disagree on a lot of things, but there's some things we connect on, and that's where we connect. She knows where I stand on things. I know where she stands on things. Maybe one day, you know, every now and then we'll delve into the subject for me to plant some more seeds. She might do the same thing. But I'm not going to give up on her. She's a, part of, she's a part of my literal biological family and a part of my human family. So that's the kind of leaning that I'm talking about. And that's hard because I'm looking at the room like now nah, because y'all looking at me like, what? <laughs> but I am my daughter's child. And I'm speaking of Martin Luther King and the King of Kings. Because that's what God did with us. He leaned in. He leaned into your stuff. Because all of us ain't all of that. We project certain things publicly. But all of us got some behind the scenes. Let's just be honest. That if people knew all of you, they would do this. So thank God, God leaned into you. So if I am supposed to be a follower personally, and this is just my faith, then I can't be a hypocrite like that, so I gotta lean in. And I gotta go through the process, just like he goes through the process with us. So that's the first thing. That's how you cultivate this, this, this mindset of honoring the dignity of all human beings, regardless of whether they're acting dignified or not regardless of whether they believe what we believe or not. Because it's dismissing people, canceling people. Uh-uh. 
That's why every time something happens in society, I'm not quick to jump on the fire band light. Get rid of them. Because guess what? What does that accomplish? I want you to logically think about that. Sometimes if it's harm and damage and the person is in a place where they can't and shouldn't be able to continue, you have to remove them for safety reasons and otherwise because you don't want people to keep harming people. But there's some situations where we're just hollering it out every time when we can put provisions into place to give people growth and transformation plans and put other consequences in place, whether it's cutting pay or other stuff, because guess what? You just moved them around on the board. They left you as a problem, but you just sent them out as a problem to another entity. They're just gonna go do it somewhere else. So at what point do we have accountability? So we gotta think about that as leaders, that it's not always cut, push out. Sometimes it's, we gotta put some correction plans in place that has some consequences with it because we're being irresponsible by releasing them to our other brothers and sisters to deal with the same exact problem. So we ain't solved nothing. So I'm a solutionist, and I think of things from that perspective. Second, I talked about language a lot, so I won't develop on that because I know we don't have a lot of time. I talked about language. Language is so important. My father said in, in um, the same book, Where Do We Go From Here? Please get the book. It's a blueprint for our world. <clears throat> you would think he was here with us right now. He was having a conversation with Stokely Carmichael and talking about black power. And he was challenging him because Stokely said, no, they need to understand black power. We need black power. And my father was trying to explain to him, there's another way and way to word this to get to the same outcome because you don't hear Jewish people saying Jewish power, but they have power. That's what he said in his book. He said, leaders have to be concerned about semantics. Say that again. Leaders have to be concerned about semantics. Words have denotative, that means the definition of a word. You can look it up and find out all the different definitions. But they have connotative meanings, things that have been ascribed to them. You know, things that people start conjuring up related to a word that when they hear it, like defund the police. You know what people hear when they hear defund the police? They hear basically that you don't want zero police. So they shut down because in a world where there's violence and crime in places, there are people that care about having at least some form of public safety that addresses that. So language is very important. Maybe it's reimagine public safety. But defund is going to shut people down because of the, the, the connotative meaning of that <laughs> and the denotative. Okay, I lost some people on that too. I'm not here for votes. That's why I'm not an elected official. I'm not trying to get no, we're, no we're votes. We're with you. We're with you. And approves. As long as he approves, that's all good to me. You know, and then finally, taking personal responsibility. When you leave here, I want you to do a... a uh, thought, emotion, and behavioral assessment, audit in your life. I want you to think about what you think about. I want you to think about your emotions and how you are responding and reacting to things emotionally. 
because we got to audit those things. We're moving through our life so swiftly and we're not taking time to really think about what's, what, what, is, what, is, what, are we, what is our thoughts right now concerning this? What, what is our emotion around it? What was my action and behavior today? More importantly, start thinking about the fact that the world is bigger than you. It's bigger than my, me and my black family. It's bigger than me and my white family. It's, it's, it's bigger than, than me and my Christian family. We live in a world of diverse people. And think about as we stand up for issues, is there anything within our thinking? Is there anything within our emotional base? Is there anything in our action that is contributing or perpetuating the injustice itself? Because if there's certain things that we want to see changed in the world, it starts with us taking responsibility in our own lives and saying, what do I need to shift and adjust? I may want something for me, but it's what I want for me for the good of all. It's not just about me. I want to make sure that what I want is also going to be healthy and equitable and fair for other people too. We got to think through these things and we don't do that enough. So how am I contributing to what may be problematic in society and how do I need to expand so that I can think about how this will affect everybody else in the end? And you have to be honest about that. We gotta stop being so self-centered and we gotta become other-centered. Because as you become other-centered, you obviously are gonna be a part of that. And I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm finished with this. I've gone into corporations and made a few people a little, you know, to look at me a little bit cross-eyed and wonder where, where is this sister coming from? And she's just letting white people get away with everything. I'm like, no. Mm-mm. I'm just being strategic. So in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because when we talk about a beloved community, it includes everybody, even your adversaries. So in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we're talking sometimes, we talk in ways, I'm not saying everybody, but there are those that talk in ways where if I were a white male, I would be scared too. Because we can't create an inclusive environment or create a new environment that's inclusive and exclude them just because we feel like they are only benefiting. We gotta figure out how everybody comes along in the equation and balance the equation so that they feel like we're not trying to get rid of you. We're just trying to make sure that across the board, this is fair. This is equitable. So at the board level, for instance, where the best place things can change because you don't have to worry about the labor laws at the same level, I have 12 board members. I need to put some more black people on this board. And I'm gonna speak about us because in every category, we're still the last. We're still the left, and I'm concerned. We're becoming close to becoming endangered group of people. So at the board level, hmm, 
let's amend our bylaws. We're gonna add four black members. Just that quick, period. That doesn't say you as a white male, go. But over time, what's gonna happen is they're gonna feel like, okay, I can make space and room for this. So we gotta start being a little more expansive and creative in our thinking as we go forward and be careful of our language as well um, and make sure we try to understand so that we can develop a plan of action to lead to a better outcome for everybody. And it's not easy. It's long-term work. But work on you in the process. Let's do this at this time. Uh, see if there's any questions from the audience. And I'll have Jamal come up. Is Jamal here? Oh, you have the mic there. Perfect. Uh, Dr. King, uh, thanks for joining us. I feel connected to you. I last saw you at the Phillips Auditorium at Lincoln School pre-COVID. And um, my grandfather, Norman Jemison, was a good friend of your grandfather, Mr. Opie. I still own that farm in Heiberger. Mm. So uh, every time you, I live in Minneapolis, every time you come, I enjoy coming to see you. But thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I think there's a question over here. Heiberger. <laughs> that big. As she makes her way over, we were graced to have Dr. Cornell West, and I would be remiss not to say he started talking about how Clarence Thomas reminded him of his grandfather, and then <laughs> proceeded to say, well, he might have a difference of opinion politically, but he had to love him. Yeah. So I appreciate you reinforcing yeah. that today. Cornell West for president. Hello, Dr. King. Welcome. And welcome, uh, Mr. Lindsay. Um, I live in a small town about an hour and a half south of here. And um, we, are, we have um, diversity, but it's very small and it's growing. So um, my partner and I uh, gathered together and we have a nonprofit that we just organized. And it is so hard to pull people that look like me together to do stuff. And that's the most disappointing thing that I'm facing right now is the lack of support, you know? And what is your words of encouragement to help me not to feel, not to give up the battle? And B, what can I do to galvanize people? I, I want to see things change in my city. I've lived there over 35 years and I've seen a lot of things change, a lot of things remain the same. And that's what motivated me to start the organization so that we can make changes. But it's disappointing, the lack of support from people that look like me to try and change things for us. So what can I do not to, be disappointed, and what can I do more to galvanize people in the loving way? 
so, like you mentioned. So what is it that you, I might ask you some questions. Yes, ma'am. What is it yes, that you want to change? Um, lack of um, businesses in our town. What can, we, what can we do to come together to get more businesses for people like me? We don't have a church. We don't have an African-American church. Not that there's a white section or a black section or whatever, but there's no gospel church there. We don't have hairdressers. When we come to get our hair done, we have to drive here to Minneapolis. Am I telling the truth, honey? Bukata knows. And there are, there are so many things that we are lacking, just fundamental things. Um, there are organizations that, that say they are for diversity, and it's good to have it on their platform, but in my eyes, it's a form of revenue for certain people, because they don't really try and change what's going on there. <laughs> so, but I really want to change things. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Are you aligned with other organizations? Yes, ma'am. That's how, how I ended up here. We are in line with the um, Minneapolis Humanities Society, the American Lung Association, different aside, right now, because we are new. This is just our first year. Okay. Well, give yourself a break. Okay. Your first year. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Trying to come out the gate. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You know, with the trophy. That don't work like that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, my mother says, struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. So Say that again. Say that again, Dr. King. Say that again. Struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. And so you're first on the right track by connecting, you know, with... Mr. Lindsay. Say it again. Minnesota United. Okay. Center. Yeah, Minnesota Humanity Center. Yes, so that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. I want you to envision one, two, three, what you want to see happen, okay? okay. And what is needed for that to happen. Okay. Because if you, if you don't have the strategy and plan to know what is needed to happen, you're not gonna know who to connect with. Stop worrying about who won't join you. Okay. You will exhaust yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Wear yourself down and you will give up. Okay. Go with who will go with you. Sometimes you have to open the door for people to really open their eyes and realize I need to join forces. So you may have to prove something first okay. to people before they connect you. So find the right places of connection and think about what resources you need so you can connect to the other resources. Because there are resources out there that you can bring into your community for those businesses to be started. Because once you do that, and give these opportunities to people that are in that particular community that look like you, mm -hmm. then they will then become advocates and walk side by side to keep opening the door for others. Okay. So that's what I would suggest that, that you do to, to keep hope alive. But please be realistic. Mm -hmm. You're just starting. And you're on a good path by making the, those connections. But again, think about you know, the plan and what you think you all think is needed to get some of those things accomplished and look around and see what exists out there. Sometimes we try to reinvent a wheel and we just gotta find out where the other, the resources are and connect with that and come, become a conduit for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you very much. There's a uh, question in the middle, Dante. 
Uh, hey, Dr. King, it's so good to be with you and all the, hey. on all the community here. Um, I had a chance to go to Montgomery, Alabama, um, at the Lynching Memorial and the Legacy Museum with Brian Stevenson. And uh, it's a surreal experience that you've been talking today about doing your own work. And one of my favorite quotes by Brian Stevenson is, hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And so I'm curious, like, what gives you hope? And how do we maintain our hope um, with all the tragedies that are happening? I hear so many people talk about, like, I didn't just lost hope. We're cynical. We, why we're still here? Why we're still doing this? Why are we still having these conversations? Uh, and I can, mm -hmm. you talked about kind of the semantics and the, the rhetoric of, of hopelessness. What gives you hope? And how do we remain hopeful that we're going to actually be able to be loved and get to this beloved community? Thanks. Thank you. So, you know, for me, um, it took me a minute to get to this. And um, it, it's really, I won't say it's simple, but it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really eye-opening and it's, it's strengthening day by day. And it's just this. One, I look at what my ancestors overcame. And this is for everybody because we all have ancestors globally. We are in a humanity that has faced some dark stuff and that humanity has overcome in those previous generations. There's always a bright light. There's always a contingency of people who are fighting in the light, with light. And I come from them. So is in me. So I'm hopeful because I know I'm a part of that. So I don't care how bad it gets. This thing here, that's not going to remain forever because there's going to be enough of us and a force of us to continue to fight. And some of this is going to be broken at some point. So that's why I just don't give up. And I come from people that I know that happened with. And more importantly, I remember something my mother said to me. She said, baby, the darkest hour is always before the dawn. She was saying to me, yes, it's dark, but there will be a dawn someday and you have to keep working. And she talked to me about how when they got in Montgomery and finally the, 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 the officials filed an injunction against the whole carpool. The carpool was essential to keep the bus boycott going. If, if they could not do that carpool, they were practically done. <laughs> and so she said, that was our darkest hour and, and Martin didn't know what to do. Our backs were against the wall and they were in court. And in, at the break of the, during the break from the trial, a reporter came in the courtroom. And there was a lot of commotion in that courtroom. And people didn't know what it was, but this reporter came down to where my father was at the defendant's table and gave the report that the Supreme Court had just ruled that bus segregation is unconstitutional. Why do I say that? When we say the universe is on the side of justice, you have to keep the pedal pushed, knowing that at some point there's going to be a divine intervention in the work that you're doing. If you don't have faith in this generation, you will continue to lose. Faith is essential to struggle. That's why this generation has to get connected, not to a church, but to a God. 
who is always going to ensure that his humanity is perpetuated. He is not going to let all this defeat just overtake us because it's not just about the defeat. As I said earlier, the things that God is putting in us and the things that God is getting out of us. Some of us got so much hate and anger. Some things are happening to shake some stuff out of us. Some things are happening to wake some things up in us because sometimes we slumber and we sleep and we get comfortable. And so we got to put some fire on. You know what I'm saying? And it's unfortunate that lives have to be lost. And I can say it because I lost the father. I lost the grandmother, not during the struggle, but was shot at a church, at our church while playing her, the organ. But sometimes these things, there's, better, there's things that what, what, what may, and, and I'm sorry to preach like this because you got me stirred now. <laughs> but what the enemy, what people who have allowed themselves to be used by the enemy are trying to do to destroy humanity, tear us apart, tear us asunder, keep us at odds with one another, the God of the universe is still operating in this universe. And he's going to bring good out of, he brought good out of what happened to George Floyd. No, we didn't get everything that we should have. But there are things happening. There's things that are emerging. Some things are still in the ground. When you put a seed in the ground, it still has inside of it the ingredients of whatever that seed is. If it's a tree, if it's a certain kind of flower, it goes in a dark space for a period of time. And if you don't continue to water that, if you don't continue to fertilize that area, it won't sprout forth. So that's why we can't stop because there are things in the ground right now, meaning it's in the dark, it's happening in a room that we don't know about. People are meeting and they're organizing and strategizing and planning and it's going to come forth. It's going to sprout forth one day and so don't give up don't get weary as they say in well-doing because in due season we will reap if we don't faint not another question right here Rosemont. Hello, Dr. King. Um, so the favorite picture of your dad that I like is when he was at the Ghana Independence Day on March 6, 1957 with then Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. So I want to ask you, what do you think about relations between Africans and African-Americans? I have lived in Minnesota for about 30 years, right? When I see a black person, they are my sister, they are my brother, I don't get the reciprocal, right? So what do you think about those relationships for the beloved community, and how do we get there? Because I'm going to continue to love, like it's one, even when I don't feel the love back, I'm going to continue to pour myself in and, 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 and love. But is there something you can tell us? Because we need to work this. Because in the final analysis, we are one, right? So right. what do you think about that? Well, I do know there's a strain. I do know there's a strain. I do know there's a tension between brothers and sisters here and the brothers and sisters from the homeland. And a large part of that is ignorance. It's, it's, it's going back to what I said about leaning in and understanding um, each other and each other's culture and also the reciprocation. I think sometimes, 
you know, I've been in conversations listening to people, and I think there's some people in the black community that feel that those in the African, from the African continent, separate themselves from the black community as if something's wrong with the blacks in America because they don't understand perhaps certain things about the culture of blacks in America, um, and perhaps vice versa. And so I think since you feel that way, there are others of you that feel that way. I think there ought to be a, a, a campaign for you all to connect and begin the process of educating. We gotta understand each other and understand our common causes. My father clearly understood that and stood up for that. Um, and so that's, that's what I would, would suggest, but it's definitely, you're right, it is definitely a serious problem. You know, but it's interesting, there are a lot of people born on this soil, some of whom descended, and I say it this way, some of whom descended from enslaved people because every black person in America did not descend from an enslaved person. We don't talk about that. And every white person did not descend from a slave owner. We don't talk about that, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um, but many are going, they're going back to Africa. Or I'm gonna say back, well, you're back. Many are going to Africa. They're finding that connectivity to Ghana and Liberia. Um, some are moving because <laughs> they don't feel like this is home anymore. So things are happening, but I think people like you have to stay on the wall and help to continue to cultivate and foster that with those that'll come along. Again, I think sometimes we spend a lot of time frustrated about who won't come along. And I think we have to go with those who come along and know that there are some people who have the ability to reach those we cannot reach. So as we are working together, we gotta re realize who's amongst us and who may be able to do the connectivity that we cannot do. All right, I, I think this, <laughs> you'd get one more question or make that's, this? Yeah, that's great. I'm not in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the time, that's on. Okay, we'll take one more from the audience here. I think I'll have one final question for you. I wanna make sure that Ms. Javetta Steele is uh, ready uh, to come up on stage and grace us again with a How couple of songs. How did she get shirt? Okay, hello, Dr. King, thank you for being here. My name is Malik Al-Taj. I am a first-generation Sudanese-American. Um, my question for you is how do you see the younger generation connecting with older black folks about the issues um, that come with the LGBT community because black trans women are disappearing and dying and as a queer individual myself I feel a like heavy disconnect trying to explain these issues in a respectful manner to mm -hmm. those who have done work before me. So it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Thank you for your, your question. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. Finding the people in the older generation, because I think that's what you said, the, the older generation. Finding the people in the older generation who are advocates, who do understand, who can help create a community of people, who can help to communicate to other people None of this stuff is going to change until we recognize we've got to work with those who are willing to work with us in that area. 
I don't want you to get frustrated. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to shut down. Um, and so that's why I'm saying this. Uh, the, the reality is there, there are issues in our society, there are things in our society that are difficult for people to grasp. And we have to do the work of helping people to understand. And part of that work is being able to say, okay, let me find others who can join with me so I can draw strength from them because you're gonna get tired alone. Others, if it's five, if it's 10, even if it's a few, it doesn't matter because a few oftentimes make the difference in terms of change and transition. And so I would suggest that whoever those adults are, because there has to be some, there's some, correct? Yeah. That you continue to cultivate that, you continue to share, don't give up sharing. Don't, don't give up continuing trying to enlighten, you know, um, and, and ask for what it is that you'd like for them to do next to help you in the, whatever the quest is that, that you're trying to do. So that would be my suggestion. Thank you. All right. This will be the last uh, question for Dr. King for today. Um, yeah, and uh, so... <laughs> In, in the audience, there are many uh, sheroes that are out there. Mm. Uh, there's a couple that I have personally seen and been fortunate to be uh, near. Uh, for example, Sharon Nelson, uh, who's bravely fighting and continues to fight to maintain the legacy of her brother Prince. <laughs> I saw Valerie Castile. Uh, there she is. Earlier today, yes. <laughs> Fighting to rid the state of the shame, the stigma of actually forcing children to pay for lunch and, and calling us out and just talk, talk about dogged determination. Got that across the finish line this uh, legislative session. So could we have another hand for her for that? And then we are very fortunate to have the First Lady of Civil Rights here from Minnesota, Dr. Josie Johnson. <laughs> 2012, Minnesota was polling, saying that we would have photo ID and legislation that would be actually more arduous than currently exists in the state of North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Johnson joined me and a whole slew of others to talk about and framing it, not just that it would hurt African-Americans, but there would be women that would not be able to vote, individuals in the military would not be able to vote at the law, and Minnesota was the only state to defeat an initiative like that in the entire country, so thank you, Dr. Johnson. There are many sheroes. You're one of them, and I'm sure that there's a lot of new sheroes that are going to be looking at you uh, for the powerful words you gave us today. But I'm curious, the sheroes in your life that we all need to know about. And fortunately, in the state of Minnesota, there's ethnic studies, so there's a lot of social studies teachers. Please be taking notes because we should be developing that curriculum. First of all, let me honor these sheroes today, and I'm glad to be in your presence. Um, You 
you know, uh, if if the if the truth be told, um, most of what happens in the world, and I'm not being biased in this, is because of women. And, let, and, and let, when I let say, the church say amen. I'm talking about most of the good. I'm talking about most of the good. No offense, my brothers, but most of the good. Even if you were the one out front. It was the one that was in the home. It was the one that was your sister. It was the one that was your friend um, that really gave you the strength and the inspiration to be either the voice or the face. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna say that at the outset um, because the number one in my life is my mom. Um, and you know, I always say to people that when my father um, was assassinated, he was one of the most hated uh, persons in the United States of America. Um, and now he's one of the most loved persons in the world. And I've had people to say, well, that's because he's dead and he can't, you know, intimidate people anymore and all that kind of stuff. I said, y you know, you have a point there, but the reality too is he is one of the most revered and looked to still as a leader in his death in the world because of the sacrificial, devoted efforts of Coretta Scott King. Um, and not, not because she was, you know, some wounded, you know, or, or hurt widow who lost her husband is looking for a cause to champion because she was a woman who before she met Martin Luther King Jr. was a peace advocate and activist herself. A woman um, who was very well versed on the issues of the world when she met her husband, a woman who was a part of a progressive political party when she was a college student on campus, a woman who stood up for her own self when they would not let her teach in the Yellow Springs uh, School District in Ohio for, for you know, her, um, um, uh, what do they call it when you, yeah, like the practice, student teaching, right. Um, and so this is a woman who knew who she was, a woman who very early on knew about the importance of preserving and advancing this movement into the future and therefore started holding on to and, and making sure that papers and recordings of Dr. King uh, would still be here for future generations. You know, a woman who understood that the voice of Dr. King would be important um, to the peace movement and when everybody else told him don't touch it, don't speak out, you're gonna alienate President Johnson from the, the work that we've been doing on the civil rights front. When every one of his civil rights buddies began to attack him profusely because he was speaking out against that, well, it was her who encouraged him to lend his voice to a movement that she had already been the sp spokesperson for the family in, the face in the family in, the one who was there before he even got there, um, it was her who was not just the wind beneath his wings, but many times was the wings themselves to keep, help him fly. Um, a, a, a woman who understood how to build the largest social change brand, if I can use that word, in the world. I visited the Nobel M Museum uh, a few years ago, 
and they told me that out of all of the Nobel laureates, not just Peace Prize laureates, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is the most searched on their website. Over 50%, and they have about a million visitors a day, are looking for something about Martin Luther King Jr. Because Coretta Scott King understood starting out when he was assassinated, I gotta take this message on a global uh, world tour. So when she wrote her book, My Life with Martin Luther King Jr., she took the world tour first before she came back to the United States of America. A woman who was very intentional about building this legacy and institutionalizing things. She knew about the importance of building a King Center, an official living memorial, so that when there was a holiday, people would have a place, an epicenter to refer back to. So while they were trying to get the holiday passed all those years from 1968 when he was assassinated, she was building things up so that it would be a crescendo. So she had traveled to many cities and states across the country, you know, not necessarily about the holiday, but planting seeds and, and writing even governors and mayors to, to recognize the birthday even before it became a federal holiday. Many states started celebrating uh, the birthday. So she was a very strategic woman. She built the largest repository of primary source materials related to the modern civil rights movement under my father's leadership at the King Center. We have an archive. A lot of people don't know about it, but there are many scholars and researchers that are well aware of it because they have to come through us to do some of their research to get some of their books out and some of their papers and their dissertations, et cetera. Um, and so this woman, there's <laughs> so much I can say about what she did. She saved the birth home of Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta. The reason there is a birth home is because Coretta went to the mayor of Atlanta while my father was still living and said, please do not demolish that community. We need to save this birth home for future generations. And because she had that mindset and made sure that that home would be there and others would be preserved, that whole preservation effort led eventually to what now is the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park because of her. It's the only black park, national park in, in, in Georgia. Uh, and it's the only one where you have things that are directly associated with the person that are still original. The home, the church, the place where he worked from, SELC is now part of that, and then his final resting place. There's so much I can say about her, but yeah, she's, she's mine, my Shiro. And as I close, Please don't ever forget, although daddy was at the forefront, although Abernathy um, and Wyatt T. Walker, and I'm thinking about those specifically that work with him in the SCLC. John Lewis didn't work with my father directly in the SCLC. She, he worked side by side as a part of SNCC. But those that were at the forefront when they first started before SCLC in Montgomery, Alabama, that did not happen because of those men and those pastors. It happened because of the Women's Political Council under Joanna Robinson. Mary Farrah Burke, who helped to found that with Joanna Robinson. They were already working, doing the groundwork that led up to um, the Montgomery protest. And when Mrs. Parks was arrested, several months after Claudette Colvin had been arrested. 
several months that the other citizens of Montgomery had been mistreated on those buses and abused on those buses, in particular women. Several months after that, those women said, this is the moment. And they called for their boycott with E.D. Nixon. And E.D. Nixon reached out to my father to join forces. So the women really were the impetus. But women are very sensitive to time and situations, but they also know that they're not gonna be disrespected. And so women knew that in order for this to be carried, they had to get at that time, the leaders of the churches to be a part of it for it to be successful so they had to work together side by side. My, my, my father understood that. He had a little sexism in him. He wasn't as bad as the rest of them though. <laughs> yeah, my mama helped with that. <laughs> she really helped with that. But they knew that we needed to be working side by side, but they were strategists. They, they, they were some of the drivers. I mean, everything you can think of. So if you want change in society, you need women connected. But let me finish. And I mean this with a loving heart. If you want to make sure that the whole society goes up, the most inclusive group of people that I know of is black women. I just have to say that. When we show up, we're thinking about the whole. I don't know any other group, including white women, that do that. And that's not to be offensive, but just check your history and watch it. Gotta have women. Thank you. Love. Now I know many of you saying, what do you mean by love? Because people have so many different understandings of love. What I am talking about is not the powerless, the weak, and the anemic love. No, no, no. I'm talking about be love and implement the demands of justice. Be love and use your power to correct everything that stands against love. The urgency of now is to dig in and create the beloved community by rising up to be love. Let's go forward in this moment and bridge the divides. Let's go forward to create the beloved community. Let's go forward and rise up to be love. Um, Dr. King will be available in about 15, 20 minutes briefly for a little photo opportunity for those who wish to stick around. For those who do not wish to stick around, there's an opportunity to pick up a book outside where you registered earlier today. And at this time, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the steel. Our <laughs> <laughs> Back to the stage, Javetta Steele, the incomparable Javetta Steele. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't know about you, but um, 
Dr. King stepped on my toes. If she stepped on yours, just say, ouch. I know that's right. Uh, it was quite enlightening. I, I am so grateful that she is here and in this space. Um, I'd like to share with you a little piece. A little piece that I had the pleasure of writing with uh, the great Don Cheadle and about seven or eight others here in Minnesota. Um, the piece is called The Point of Review. And each one of us was supposed to bring to the table our point of view on a particular subject. I chose the Pentecostal black church. And this is a Southern woman talking to a young girl about the age of 17 who is struggling with who and whose she is. And the piece kind of solidifies what Dr. King was saying today, that if each one reaches one, we'll get something done. And so this woman decides to pass on this information to this 17-year-old girl who is struggling with her position in society and not sure if she's truly being loved. And it goes a little like this. Mother's board. Child, when did you become this beautiful? Why, with your father being so ill-faced and poorly built, who would ever think that you'd have the natural wherewithal to be as striking as any matriarch in this family? I look in your eyes and I see a collage of all the people that I've loved and known all my life. Now listen, you don't get to decide where you come from. Your say-so comes in where you're headed. You have a voice there. Oh, I can see that you tire of this family's consistencies, but you can't change our history any more than sunshine can sweeten trash. We are who we are, and we've been where we've been. Going to church when I was a girl was not an option. It was a way of life for us. My sisters and I would run the daily rituals of chores and pressed hair on Saturday, laying out our Sunday best that afternoon, all the while planning to attend some local church musical that evening. It wasn't an option of whether or not you were going to church. You were going and going on time. Sunday morning, Sunday school at 8 a.m., service at 11, YPWW, which stood for Young People's Willing Worker, at 5, and then evening service about 7 o'clock thereafter. That's how it was. We sang songs of Zion while shouting and slobbering all over ourselves, calling on God late into the evening hours. We met our friends there. We met our lovers there. And we built a life there full of, full of hallelujahs and amens that were as familiar as any family photo album. Preachers and politicians were synonymous. Whatever was going on in the community, whatever the need, great or small, all started and ended with the watchful and judging eye of the church. Oh yes, there was plenty of judgment to go around. In my church, we had all sorts of sayings and rules that were intended to keep us in a right relationship with the Lord. 
pastor would say, <clears throat> live your life as though it were the last days using the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, which stood for basic instructions before leaving earth manual. For reaching God here and in the great beyond. Oh, we sit there with divided interests, hoping that God didn't really care about our thoughts and deeds of want and lust only moments before entering his house, and would take some time to consider giving us a little credit for all the hours we had spent in church the week before. I don't think they trusted us nor themselves. I mean, really, church four and five times a week? You need a few days in between just to commit a valid sin or sure up a mighty testimony. Lord, it was so controlling. They even came up with an additional set of commandments just for the young folks, as if the original 10 weren't enough to swallow. We were called the Puritans, and you were permitted entrance at the tender age of 13, and along with your admittance came a, a commitment to charity and chastity and devotion to the church and your community at large. Right alongside your weekly Bible verses, you learned a few customaries. Now, let me see if I can remember them. One, stop and think before you drink. Two, don't let your parents down, they brought you up. Three, be humble enough to obey, you'll be giving orders yourself someday. Four, at the first moment, turn away from all unclean thinking. Five, Never offer criticism without also offering a better remedy. Six, choose a date that would make a good mate. Go to church faithfully. The Creator gives you a week, give Him back at least an hour. Eight, avoid following a crowd. Be an engine, not a caboose. Nine, choose your friends carefully, for you are what they are. And ten, Keep the original Ten Commandments. Yes, that is food for thought. Now listen, baby. I know you have more questions than answers. And I also know that your thoughts are a montage of voices that are as confusing and colorful as a rainbow without rain. But I want you to know that you're not alone. We all understand. Some of us just have a tough time with the remembering. You're gonna be all right, more than all right. When things get difficult, I want you to do what mama used to tell me to do. Stop, breathe, and push, push, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. And I know deep down in my Noah that everything will be all right. Well, we've come this far by faith. Leaning on the Lord. Trusting in His holy word. Well, He's never